That's great. Okay, that, that's Andrew Owen, and certainly he's, he is the apostle who is a real mentor to me and oversees the, the church here and uh, gives us kind of accountability and oversight, which is phenomenal. We have the once a month event called First Sunday that Andrew alluded to there. I want to encourage you to, as many of you as possible, come through. It's on next Sunday evening. So once a month on the Sunday evening, we don't have an evening meeting because we have the first Sunday event. Okay, well, we're going to turn to the Bible today. Uh, now, you, you've, who got, when they came in the door, who got a thing called informed? Did everyone get that? Give us, give it, wave it in the sky. Okay, now, from now on, you're going to get notes on Sunday morning. Say, ooh. <laughs> and um, also, another change we're making is that we're, we're sharing what we're sharing in the morning, we're also sharing in the evening meeting, and uh, it means that everyone's hearing the same things, and we found that since going to two locations for our morning and evening meetings, we found that the evening service is pretty much a, a unique crowd of people, so there are different bunch of people meet there that, that do here in the mornings. Uh, so I want to encourage you, if you still want to come to two services, I want to encourage you to come to one to take in, and come to one to give out to serve. Okay. Right, let me just, before I get into the message today, let me share a couple of uh, things that happened in the last, just in the last week. These are two things I heard of, and I thought they were phenomenal. Um, Andrew Owen, who you saw in the film clip, sent me an email this week, uh, and this is what he said. Today, a guy who's been coming to the church in Glasgow for 10 months, he came 10 months ago to prepare for his funeral due to a serious brain tumor. He was told he had you know, a very short time to live, so he wanted to make sure his life was right with God. Anyway. That week, last week, the doctors gave him an unexplainable all clear and don't want to see him again. Isn't God good? Isn't God good? And uh, uniquely last week as well, I, I met up with, every so often I meet up with a couple of guys from, uh, who lead a church in Dundee and we're just, we're, we've, we've become good friends over, over the months and we've, they, they come down and we, we hang out and ha- had lunch together. And they were telling me that last week, the church that they, they lead in Dundee, it was founded you know, many years ago, and the older couple who founded the church are still in the church, although they're no longer leading it. Anyway, the, the, the wife of the pastor who founded the church, she was also diagnosed a couple of weeks ago with a brain tumor. And last week, she was uh, asked to come in again to be scanned for the purpose of finding out how they would operate in this brain tumor. So they wanted to do a scan to figure out the, the, how they would approach the operation. She went, so on the Sunday before that scan, um, the elders in the church there prayed over her. She went in for the scan last week and no brain tumor, disappeared. Isn't that phenomenal? In, in one week, two testimonies like that. God is great. Well, we're, we're starting the book of James and this is probably going to be a 14-week series. That's the plan just now. So it's going to take us from now up till summer. So just think, throughout this series, it's going to get brighter and brighter and sunnier and sunnier, so uh, we can enjoy that. Okay, we're in James chapter 1, verse 1. My, my, my theme, my title for the whole series that we're doing is How My Brother Lived. Father, we pray as we turn to the Bible and as we go through the book of James over this next season, our request is that God, you would meet with us, you would speak to us, and you touch us in the deepest areas of our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, James chapter one, verse one. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's today's verse. 
You know what, what we're going to do is, today I'm going to do two things in the message. I'm going to start with just giving you a, a kind of a summary of what the book of James is all about, and then we're going to get into something that I really believe we should tackle, talk about serving God. So the first question I want to answer is, well, who was James? In the New Testament, you find there were four Jameses mentioned, at least four. Here were the key Jameses that were mentioned. There was James, the son of Zebedee, He's got a famous dad, he was part of a, a TV series, now, James, the son of Zebedee, his brother was called John, and they were one of the twelve. They were, James and John were part of the twelve disciples. There was another James, James, the father of Judas. And Judas was also one of the twelve. Now, that's not Judas Iscariot. There was another Judas who was also part of the twelve, and his father was called James. There was another James called James, the son of Alphaeus, and he was part of the twelve. And the last James was James, who was the half-brother of Jesus. He was, his, his mother was Mary, his father was Joseph, just as Jesus was. Um, now, we know that the person who authored the book in the Bible called the book of James was James, the half-brother of Jesus, hence the title of the series, How My Brother Lived. You see, James wasn't just writing theory, he watched his brother live. And even though throughout most of Jesus' life, James was very skeptical of Jesus. He he wasn't a believer until after the resurrection. He observed how he lived, and he could not help but be in awe of what living like a believer looked like. And that's what this book is all about. Now, we know it was this James for two reasons. Um, One reason summed up by a guy called Douglas Moo, um, and and he was a, a, a theologian, and he said that none of the other Jameses mentioned in the New Testament lived long enough uh, to write this book. And also, none of them were prominent enough just to simply say, James, the brother, sorry, James, servant of God. He doesn't go into any detail about who he is. He just says, James, a servant of God. He doesn't say James, the son of someone. He doesn't say James from Jerusalem. He just says James. Because the James that we're talking about here was so famous, he didn't need to add anything else. So that's why we know it was James, the brother of Jesus. Another reason we know it was James, the brother of Jesus, was in the Greek language, the way he writes this book is very similar to a speech that James, the brother of Jesus, gave, which is recorded in Acts 15. The same use of the Greek language is seen in that speech in Acts 15, as you see throughout the book of James. So Jesus and James had the same mum. It says in Matthew 13, 55, talking about Jesus, is this not the carpenter's son? Is his mother called, not called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? So Jesus had his mum Mary, but he also had brothers. Now, the Catholic Church would teach that Mary didn't have any other kids after Jesus. But according to the Bible, that's not the case. He had many siblings, brothers, but also sisters. In Galatians 1, 18 to 19, it says, this is the Apostle Paul writing, he says, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with them for 15 days. <clears throat> and I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. So this is the James we're talking about. He was the brother of Jesus. You imagine growing up with Jesus as your elder brother. Right? That, that, that was cool and tough at the same time. Right? Arguments, you know, who's going to win the argument? Who's, who's going to be in the right? Okay? Not James. I know he's right, but I'm going to fight him anyway. You know, every time, imagine growing up with Jesus. It would have been the most awesome, yet the most challenging thing, you know. Uh, Also, from Jesus' side, I can sympathize with Jesus as well. Imagine you're God, right? In fact, don't think about that too long. Uh, 
But Jesus, imagine breaking the news to your family. You know, how would you start that conversation? I'm God. You know, imagine his dad's sitting down with them as all good dads do. They raise their kids in the faith. And uh, dad's sitting down with Jesus saying, well, okay, son, I'm going to teach you today about God being the creator. And Jesus would be thinking, sitting there thinking, yep, I also made you dad. And uh, No, it's a kind of awkward one. But also, I have to say, the Bible's really honest that his family thought Jesus was nuts. They really did. Now, don't think Mary did, because Mary had an angelic visitation before Jesus' birth. So she kind of knew that there was something so significant about her son. But the brothers, they were so skeptical throughout Jesus' life. Um, we, We see in Mark 30, sorry, Mark 3, um, Mark 30, man, we'd still be in Mark's gospel for the next three years if it was uh, Mark 30. We just finished Mark's gospel last week, and it was 16 chapters. Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 21, here we find that Jesus' siblings thought he was nuts, he was mad. One time Jesus entered a house and the crowds began to gather again. Uh, soon, Soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. When his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. Right? So his, his brothers thought, this Jesus is nuts. You know, he's kind of awesome, but he's nuts. He's lost the plot. John 7, 5 says, even his own brothers didn't believe in him. So it wasn't like uh, this amazing family and all the brothers were, yeah, we knew all along he was the Messiah. No, no, they, they doubted throughout. Even though they saw the miracles, even though they saw the crowds gather, even though they heard the things he said, see, Jesus' claims were just so radical. They were just so radical. You can't sit in the fence when it comes to Jesus. Either he was everything he claimed to be, or he was nothing. Either he was everything he claimed to be, or he had a screw loose and he was mad. Because he didn't just teach good morals. He made significant claims about divinity, about his relation to the eternal. He claimed that he and the Father were one. And to make such claims would either make him mad or completely true. And for many years, his brothers thought, he's mad. (laughs) James himself didn't believe in Jesus until after the resurrection. And uh, he went on having believed in Jesus to become the lead pastor in, I guess, the Mecca of Christianity in Jerusalem. Huge church in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem church grew to uh, between 18 and 36,000 people very quickly. It was a huge church, considering that Jerusalem's population in that time was only 60,000 people. This church had a vast proportion of the population in the church. And incidentally, that's our vision. Not just for us in isolation, but our vision is this city would be Christianized. We want to share the message of Jesus Christ with the city, unapologetically. That is what we're here for. We're not here to keep morality alive or religion alive. We're here to help people meet Jesus. And we'll do that with everything we can for as long as we can, with as much passion as we can, and obviously under God's inspiration and leading. And we want to see churches packed. We want to see uh, rush hour traffic on Sunday. We want to see football traffic on Sunday, although there's no football on. People are getting to church. Not have any problem with football. But we want to see churches packed all across the city. Uh, I know that's Andrew's vision in Glasgow and and across the nation. We want to see churches, we want to see Scotland re-Christianized. We want to see Great Britain made great again. Because what made Great Britain great 
is Jesus Christ. If there's anything great about Great Britain, anything great, things like, small things like healthcare system, little tiny little things like the educational system, I mean, little insignificant things like the legal system, all of which find their roots in Jesus Christ. And yet we're removing that foundation now and we're hoping the wall still stands. But folks, if Britain's got a future, it's because Jesus Christ has done something in Britain. And that's what we're here to do. Nothing else. That's what we're here to do. Re-Christianize our city. And um, so Jesus made such a profound impact in James that James went on to become the leader of this great church. This great church was a huge percentage of their population there. And uh, there's actually no record in the New Testament that James ever left Jerusalem. So having become a pastor there, he basically pastored there until, until the ends. He was a faithful pastor. He loved those people. He gave himself for life to pastoring in one area. <clears throat> and I, do you know what my observation's been? If you look around churches around the world, churches that are really making an impact, typically it's when the pastor and the leaders around them have committed to being there for life. And uh, myself and Angie, our commitment is we're here in Edinburgh for the long haul. Uh, we're here till, till, as far as we're concerned, till we die. Uh, building one church for the benefit of, of the city and, for, and for hopefully from here we can impact the rest of the world. But I believe in longevity of ministry. I think you've got to commit to a place and, and work that time and be consistent and be faithful and just keep going and grafting. And James was like this. He was seen as a pillar of the church. Uh, the Apostle Paul writing about James in Galatians 2.9 says that James, Peter and John, those reputed to be pillars. Now the church is full of pillocks, but that's not what James was. James was a pillar. You know, bring on the pillars, not the pillocks. We want to see church full of people who are backbone people. Backbone, solid, established, establishers. That you hang around them, you want to love God more. You hang around them, you want to stay committed to God longer. That James was a pillar in the church. He went from being a skeptic of his brother to being a pillar. Okay, here's some facts about the book of James. It was the first New Testament letter written. And um, just so you know, the word the, the letter in the New Testament is called an epistle. Okay, the epistles weren't the wives of the apostles. They, they were the letters in the New Testament. Um, Greek language experts like, like myself um, have said that the book of James is, is one of the most eloquent use of the Greek language. That James had such a handle on the Greek language that it is the most eloquent of all the books in terms of if you're a Greek scholar, you would be reading it or you would think this is, this is phenomenal. James was incredibly direct. He talked straight. He was very simple and very clear and very blunt and direct. You're going to find this as we go through this book. That, Jesus, that James just hammers home the issues. He just nails the, hits the nail on the head. In the book of James, it's kind of following on from that, the fact that he's very subtle. No, sorry, not subtle and very blunt. What you find is out of the 108 verses in the five chapters of James, you find that there are 59 commands he gave in the 108 verses. So look, kind of every, every other verse, there was, a, there was a unique command or imperative. So James was constantly saying, this, and do this, and live like this, and make this happen. It was constantly, it was power-packed, very direct, and very strong. He, in this book, alluded to over 20 Old Testament books, and he referred to many great characters in the Old Testament, such as Abraham, Rahab, Job, Elijah, as well as Moses and the Ten Commandments. He uses lots of metaphors and illustrations throughout his book, and you're going to find this as you go through the book. 
He spoke about mirrors and horses and tongues and flowers and fires and arrogant businessmen, moth-eaten clothes and stormy sea, just to name a few. He used many pictures and illustrations to illustrate his points. Also, as you read through the book of James, you'll find that he has a huge grasp of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon found in Matthew chapter 5 and the chapters following, the Sermon on the Mount. James had a huge grasp of the Sermon on the Mount. You find that James, at least on a dozen occasions, makes direct reference to the Sermon on the Mount. He believed that message, and he reiterated that message in his own teaching. James uh, is described as probably the least doctrinal of the books in the New Testament, other than Philemon. Um, and probably one of the, oh, having said that, if you go through the book of James, as you will with, over this next 14 weeks, you'll find that James did tackle huge doctrinal things like the doctrine of God. He talks about God being a father and God not being a God who changes and God being a God who is good, every good and every perfect gift comes down from him. There are huge doctrines. He talks about the doctrine of sin and fallenness and tackling temptation and all those things. So while it's the least doctrinal book in the New Testament, it was a doctrinal book. But I have to say, the reason probably was, was that James was writing to a bunch of people who are quite academic who were great theologians, who had already a good doctrinal basis. They remind me of of yourselves. Yes, I was joking. Um, But for James, the issue wasn't you need to know more. The issue was you need to do something about what you know. Right? Because what happens is Christians are what, I know all this about God and I can quote all these Bible verses, but are you living the verses you know? Are you, are you basing your life on the truth you say you're believing to? You see, Edinburgh will change not when people can quote the Bible. Edinburgh will change when people live the Bible. When husbands be the kind of husbands the Bible says they ought to be, instead of dweebs. When wives be the wives that the Bible says they ought to be. When kids grow up in the faith. When, when people live in employment situations and work hard as employees, treating their bosses well, as well as bosses treating their employees well. Literally, it's cultural change. The Bible, when applied to life, totally works, brings success, brings transformation, and brings honor to God, as well as bring much blessing in your own life. So James's emphasis was, it's not that you need to know more, although he will tell you more. The emphasis was, you're an intelligent bunch, but you now need to start living <clears throat> what you've known about. You need to start putting into practice the theory you've got. Okay, let me talk about James now. What was he all about? Well, I think what he was all about is mentioned in this very first verse. He was all about being a servant. It says, James, servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Two facts about James. He was famous. He didn't need to go on, as I said earlier, he didn't need to expand on who he was. He just says, James. He was well known. He could have said, James, Jesus' brother. Hey, the guy who knows all about Jesus. He could have said that. He didn't. He just says, James. So he was well known. But the second thing you need to know is he was utterly humble. Because instead of priding himself in being Jesus' brother, he prides himself in being Jesus' servant. He says, James. Oh, James. The famous James. Absolutely. What was he all about? Servant of God. He was a humble guy, lived with humility, no pride, 
saw his role in life was to serve the Almighty. Now also in the New Testament, remember we read earlier that Jesus had many brothers. One of his other brothers, who was also skeptical but came to have faith after the resurrection, was Jude. Or as he may have been listed in Matthew's Gospel, Judas, which is the same word. Jude, who wrote the book called Jude. And in Jude 1, verse 1, it says this, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Right? Jude had many brothers. Two of them were Jesus and James. But notice when Jude writes about Jesus and James, he doesn't say, I had a brother called Jesus and a brother called James. He says, I'm a servant of Jesus and I'm a brother of James. (laughs) You know, these guys were truly great leaders, truly great people, but they understood that greatness came from servanthood. And as far as they were concerned, they were there humbly to serve Jesus Christ. For them, man, they, they wouldn't even dare call him, call him brother. He was the Lord. And they knew it. And they were totally humble to Jesus. The, the word they use for servant is the Greek word doulos, which means a slave or a bond servant. So the word servant actually isn't the, most accurate lang- isn't the most accurate word to use. A more accurate word to use would be slave or bond servant. Now we don't understand what bond servant was because it, it was something that was around in those days. But the word bond servant was a lot more than just a servant. A bond servant or a slave, in contrast to a servant, a servant could work as a servant and then could retire. Or could work as a servant and then say, I'm going to go work down the chippy instead. They could change jobs. But a bond servant or a slave, that was it. They were that for life. It was an entirely different remit. It was a longer duration. It was an utter commitment. So when these guys are saying, we are servants of Jesus, we're saying we're doulos of Jesus. We are bond servants. We are slaves. We are in this for life. We're not just trying this out. We're not going to just, well, we'll see if it works. We are no strings attached, unconditionally following Jesus as his servants from now on full stop, that's it. That's what our lives are all about. And that's why they were great people. That's why they became great leaders. People I admire are not the people who talk much about themselves. The people I admire are the people who are doing great things because they love God. They're servants. It's not the people who say the great things or act great or tell everyone how great they are. It's people who are actually doing the stuff in service to God. In, you find this concept of bond servant in the Old Testament. So, for example, in Exodus 21, verse 2, we read about a law concerning servants. Because it was the Jewish custom that if you were a Jewish person and a servant, you could only be a servant for six years. And then in the seventh year, you had to be released. That was the Jewish law. It says in uh, Exodus 21, 2, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he's to serve you for six years, but on the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. However, if you were a servant and you loved your master and you said, you know what, I love my master and out of love, that's the motive, decide I don't want to serve you for six years, I want to serve you for life. Then you went from being a servant to being a bond servant or a slave. And that's what it goes on to say in Exodus 21, it goes on to verses 5 and 6, it says, But if a servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children and do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges and he will take him to the door or to the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. 
and he will become a servant for life or a bond servant. James and Jude start their letters almost, almost with pride, saying, I'm a bond servant of Jesus. For them, being committed as a slave of Jesus Christ for life was a huge honor. It was the, it was the ultimate title. While they could have had lots of bravado, I was the brother of Jesus, the most famous person ever. I saw him grow up. I, I can tell you stories about him. I can tell you more than is recorded in the Gospels. They could have done all that, but they didn't. They said, we're servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. They understood what true greatness was all about. <clears throat> I want to give you three really simple applications here. Number one, make serving God your biggest ambition in life. I don't know what your ambition in life is. Many people's ambition in life, typically the world sells us an ambition. And the world's ambition that it sells us is this, get, obtain, get accolades, get money, get position, get stuff, get things. Well, when has that ever worked? When has that ever changed someone's life? When has that ever improved the world? In fact, I'll tell you many times when it's ruined the world. I'll tell you many times where the husband in his desire to get dumps his wife and kids because he's got something else he wanted outside of that marriage. Or people getting at the expense of others. Or people obtaining in, in, in selfishness. It doesn't do any good to anyone. It's not your life purpose. Why is it we feel greater satisfaction when we give someone something than we do when we get something from someone? There's greater satisfaction in that. Would you not all agree? Just forget the Bible, just naturally speaking. It's there's more satisfaction in living like that, a give life rather than a get life. Why is that the case? Here's why. Because that's how you were designed. That's how you were wired. You were wired to live a give life, not a get life. So this Western consumerist mentality is, is trying to put forces into a mold that actually kills us. It ruins who we were meant to be. It, it neutralizes our effectiveness. We, were, we are here, we are called to make a difference and to give ourselves away. That's why Jesus said, if you want to find life, lose your life. You know, you find your life in giving your life away. That's, that's, that's such a paradox, but it's true. And that's, that's biblical living. I, Albert Einstein said that a life lived for others is a worthwhile life. Jesus, when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus replied, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest thing in life? What's my life purpose, Jesus? His answer was not you. It doesn't mention you in it anywhere. Huh? Well, that's my life purpose. You meant to tell me something about me. He didn't. He tells you something about God and tells, tells you something about others. He doesn't mention you in it once. And this is where we've got it totally wrong. We've made the wrong goal our goal. We've, we've pursued me rather than pursuing him and others. And I tell you, if, if you want you to benefit, then here's the best way to live a satisfying life. Live for him and live for others. You will sleep well at night. You will die well, satisfied having done the will of God. I guarantee you give one day to serving God and others versus one week and all the pleasures and luxuries this world has to offer. I guarantee you what will give you more satisfaction. A week of lavish pleasures or one day of serving God and others. I guarantee you what will give you more pleasure. I guarantee you. Why? Because it's the way you're wired. Make serving God your biggest ambition in life. If that has not been your ambition up until today, why not make a radical decision 
repent for selfishness and say, from here on, I'm going to be someone who gives myself away for God and others. I'm going to change my ambition. I'm going to make my ambition to be a servant of God. That's it. Not a servant of me, not a servant of my title, not a servant of my ministry, not a servant of my project or my thing or this. Or I'm going to be about God. I'm going to be about others. Thanks for your enthusiasm in that revelation. Uh, Bill Heibel says, I would never want to reach out someday with a soft, uncalloused hands, a hand that never dirt, was never dirtied by serving, and shake the nail-pierced hands of Jesus. You would never want to reach out and shake the nail-pierced hands of Jesus unless he himself had got his sleeves rolled up and get involved in serving. Jude and James thought it was the greatest honor to serve. But throughout the Bible, we have phenomenal accounts of great heroes Great leaders who called themselves servant. One of the greatest examples is King David in the Bible. I did a quick study on this. I just quickly did a word search. And see if you try this yourself. Look for how many times David referred to himself as king. Now, boy, was he a king. Now, he was, he was probably, I mean, second to Jesus, he was the most famous king Israel ever has. Most famous king. David, I mean, that was the, that was the highlight of, the na- of national pride. David was a phenomenal leader. He was the best king they'd had. But you, you find that you, you go and search how many times did David refer to himself as, I'm the king? You're going to really struggle. I, I couldn't even count in one hand how many times. But you go and do the same search and find out how many times David referred to himself as, Your servant. You'll find dozens of times. So here we have this great king. And what was his agenda? I'm here to serve. This great king made his ambition servant-hearted to God. That's what made him great, actually. That's why he became a great king, because that was his agenda. The epitaph on David's life is found in Acts 13, 36, where it says, For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers and his body decayed. Bit too much information there, Lord. Thank you. Right, he decomposed and his eyeballs shrunk and, uh, and then little worms anyway uh, just too much information but I like the first bit it says when David had served God's purpose in his generation what's David's epitaph? he served God's purpose in his generation you think wow isn't that fantastic the reality is you've only got one generation right so you can sit and twiddle your th- you can, the epitaph in your life I twiddled my thumbs in my generation it's not very good, is it? Or it can be, Jim, served God's purpose in his generation. Sarah, served God's purpose in her generation. Donna, served God's purpose in her generation. Serve God's purpose. What, that, that should be the epitaph. Make that your ambition. You, serve, you ain't got another generation. You can't say, oh, well, if I was in that generation, then I'd serve God. No, no, you've only got this generation. And sure, things ain't perfect. And sure, there's always excuses. But everyone always did have excuses. So what about just make it, changing your ambition and making your greatest ambition in life to be a servant of God, both in public and in private, whether anyone sees or whether no one sees, because for you, it's about pleasing the audience of one. Jesus himself redefined greatness for us. We find in Mark 10, 42 to 43, 
Jesus called his disciples together and said to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers in the Gentiles lord it over them and the high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wishes to become first must be slave of all. Do loss, bond servant, slave. So Jesus says, he just turns on the head the world's definition of greatness. Jesus noticed he didn't rebuke them for the desire to be great. He didn't say, whoever wishes to become great among you, you arrogant so-and-sos. He didn't say that. He said, the desire for greatness is a good thing. It's just the way you've been going about trying to get it is wrong. You've been trying to get greatness the way the world tries to get greatness, by lording it over others, by trying to get people under your thumb, by trying to get people to do what you want, by trying to make everyone dance to your tune. But you want to be a truly great person in the sight of God? Well, Jesus' definition of greatness was this. Be a servant of others. Serve. Now, who was Jesus talking to? He was talking to the 12 disciples. Jesus and his 12 disciples are undoubtedly the most famous people ever. Jesus became the most famous person ever. And his disciples were the greatest world changers ever. You think, you ain't, actually, history proves you ain't going to get greater than them. Yet their definition of greatness was servant-heartedness, doulos, bond servant. Make it your biggest ambition in life. Stop trying to serve yourself, your own agenda, and start trying to serve God's and his agenda. Put others before yourself, and that's tough for us all, but it's the best way to live. You will not find fulfillment twiddling your thumbs. You will find fulfillment as a servant of God. And for each one of you, that will look different for everyone. Because everyone has unique opportunities. Everyone has unique giftings. Everyone has different allotments of time available to them. But what, with the resources God has given us, with the time he has given us, with the energy he's given us, with the gifting that he's given you uniquely, use what you've got to be a servant. Martin Luther King Jr. said, an individual has not started living until he can rise above the narrow confines of his individualistic concerns to the broader concerns of all humanity. Life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? Everyone can be great because everyone can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You don't have to know about Plato and Aristotle to serve. You don't even have to know Einstein's theory of relativity to serve. You don't have to understand the second law of thermodynamics and physics to serve. You only need a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. Martin Luther King Jr. What are you doing for others? I've been reading a book recently, From Good to Great by Jim Collins. Excellent book. He analyzes companies that went from average returns and successes over a 15-year period to something took place in, in their infrastructure, to they went on to have 15 years of market-beating results. It's an awesome study. He narrowed it there are only 10 companies in the Fortune 500 who managed to pass that test. 15 years of average results and 15 years of market-beating results. And he analyzed, well, what was it in those companies that took them from average company to great company consistently for 15 years? And in his findings, he found that the kind of leaders who led those companies were not the kind of loud, charismatic, bravado leaders who made everyone do what they wanted. But rather, they were typically humble people. But here's the the thing, right? They put the company before themselves. 
Many of the loud CEOs, the bravado, the chief executives drive the fancy cars and want everyone to do what they want. It's about them. And even the success of the companies to make them look good. But the companies that went from good to great, without exception, all of their leaders in their companies put the company before themselves. They made their agenda to serve the company. That's what made them great companies. Honestly, th- this, this truth that I'm sharing with you today works in reality, not just in theory. This works. Jesus himself demonstrated what true greatness was by living a life of serving other people. You see him serving the widow. You see him serving the poor. You see him serving the blinds and the lepers. You see him hanging out with people that no one else would hang out with, touching people's lives that no one else would touch. Why? Because he loved and served people. Jesus ultimately served humanity in his death and resurrection. It says in Philippians 2, 5 to 11, your attitudes should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God's, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. So God became man. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Not just death, but the most grotesque of deaths, the most barbaric, the most prolonged, pain-filled, hate-filled, degrading death, death on a cross, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every other name. That the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus in Mark 10 said in verse 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus ultimately served you and I not just by giving us a great legacy of good teaching, but he gave his life for you and I. Now that might not seem so poignant because it happened 2,000 years ago, but I have to tell you in God's mind, it's as poignant as if it happened right two minutes ago. The reality of Jesus' death and resurrection is vital now. And you sinner, you need something to happen before you can get into heaven. And what Jesus did in the cross made something possible, that Jesus served you by him paying the price on your behalf so that you and me, sinner, can get saved and go to heaven instead of spend eternity in hell. He did that for us. He ultimately served humanity by paying the ultimate price for you and for I. That's the claim of the Bible, and that's the good news. And by believing in Jesus who died and rose again, that takes place for you. You come alive on the inside. You get saved. At the end of the service, I'm going to give you the opportunity. If you're not yet connected with Jesus, if you don't know that you're saved, at the end of the service, I'll give you that opportunity. Make the biggest and best decision you could ever make. Give your life to follow him for the rest of your days. Servant-hearted is great. Make it your ambition to be a servant. I'm going to invite three of my friends up just now who are going to tell you what servant-heartedness means to them. Can I invite up Ken Ross, Ed McCracken, and Monica Sambo? Let's hear it for these folks as they come. Ken, introduce yourself and, and tell us about yourself, and then tell us what serving means to you. Okay, hi, guys. Uh, I'm a father and a commercial lawyer, and also I have a number of uh, hobbies that I enjoy principally. Uh, sports. 
Now, Ken, just to interrupt you there, did you ever play any famous matches? One or two. Ken, Ken has played rugby for Scotland. A long time ago. Isn't that phenomenal? <laughs> yeah, so you can get his autograph at the end. He'll hand it autograph. These were the days when a uh, small guy where he could play scum half. <laughs> you have to be built like this and this. Um, serving is really very simple. It's about recognising who you are and where you are and what you can do and then doing that for God. Um, I've always regarded my family as my first and foremost mission field and therefore um, serving them really means trying to uh, model and exemplify uh, what God means to me and positioning oneself to be available to give advice rather than um, imposing it. Um, in my job as a commercial lawyer, I see lots of so-called big people. That's folk who think they're big, either because they've got a degree or because they make lots of money or because they're able to win uh, court cases or handle negotiations. And in one sense, they are big, but in another sense, they're pretty small because they're putting all their trust and their identity in these things, which are just things. And in that particular context, um, what I try to do is to take the skills and the experiences and the contacts that I have from my work and use them in different ways to help folk, um, not just in, in the connection with the church, but in any, in any scenario. And um, often when you do that, you uh, learn more as you uh, serve and help them. So it's a great thing that this is a two-way street. You get blessed as well as them getting helped in their situation. And then finally, I think in the context of the church, there's been opportunities to uh, use my professional skills to, to help uh, Destiny Church as it's grown, not just in Edinburgh, but across Scotland and beyond. That's been a very um, exciting thing for me personally, to see uh, a direct blessing uh, from uh, my uh, particular uh, abilities in that way. But also, I think, uh, someone... Um, he was a bit older than most of you guys here. Do you remember when I first came or got involved in the church? Just about everybody was under 40, happily now. Maybe we've got a few balancing uh, <laughs> uh, demographics, shall we see. But um, I think that as you get older, you learn that there's so much more to learn. And it's exciting to see how God is blessing Edinburgh through young folk, yeah. even like Peter. <laughs> Let's hear it for Ken Ross. Let's hear it for Ed and Monica. Who would like to go first? I've got the mic. So sure. Such a servant heart, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, me, me, me. <laughs> I. It's all about you know what I'm saying. It's what we're trying to tell you about. Um, okay, Ed, tell us about you. Uh, what you do, how you live, and then in a moment I'll ask you about serving. Okay, cool. Well, I, uh, I head up the PA team here at church, and I've kind of been doing that pretty much since the second week I came here, Destiny, uh, six and a half years ago. So, um, yeah, and it's, uh, it takes up, you know, uh, a lot of my time, but it's something which uh, I enjoy, like I really enjoy. When I started out doing it, I, uh, I had very little experience in uh, PA, and... Uh, 
Yeah, Pete just called me the second week he was here and said, hey, we don't have a PA desk, and we've got 20 people, and we've got a guitar, we've got a microphone. Um, can you make us sound good? And I think six years later, I've managed to kind of get you sound okay. So. <laughs> this guy's a sound man. He's a really yeah. good man. Yeah. His jokes haven't changed over six years either. <laughs> Something we can't do with the PA desk, sadly. <laughs> and Ed, Ed tell, tell the folk, what, what do you do as a career? Uh, I'm a journal- how, how much of your time does that take? Uh, I'm a journalist. Uh, I work for one of the main Sunday papers here in Scotland, and it takes up a lot of time. You know, it's you know not just a nine-to-five job. There's lots of evening events. You know, sometimes bleeds over into the weekend. So, I'm busy. It's fun. It's awesome. So it is. But yeah, it's uh, it's busy. And you you wouldn't want to ask you this, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Um, tell us about your sex life. No, sorry, not what's the wrong way. Um, how many times have you been Young Journalist of the Year? Uh, just once. Just once. Just once. I thought it was more. Just once. Just once. Isn't that great? So, I want to make a point. This guy has got a major career. He's doing well in that career. And he surfs. Let's hear for Ed McCracken. All right, Monica. Um, Monica, tell us about about your life. uh, Well, um, when I came to church, I uh, was challenged um, and asked why I didn't serve and um, I was asked questions like well how much time do I spend with my friends or watching TV or on the internet or calling people and how much time do I actually give to God and I couldn't say that I gave enough time to God so um, and then I made excuses um, my cell leader your home group leader wow (laughs) what home group is that just to warn others (laughs) 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 no don't dance okay but um, I, I couldn't say that I did anything. And then I gave an excuse of, oh, well, I like to work with kids, but I don't have any qualifications with kids. And um, most parents will know that they'll see me signing in their kids and looking after them on a Sunday now. And it was just basically an enthusiasm and a passion to serve. Um, it doesn't matter if you've got a qualification or not. You can be used wherever you put yourself there. What did you get out of doing that, Monica? Um chance to be a kid and be free. <laughs> no, um, it's really, really... You the sermon, you get to act like a kid. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I hang out with the kids. No, um, it's really rewarding because I'm sewing into their lives and it makes, well, I can see a difference being made because you can, talk, you can hear the kids when they come back and talk about stuff that um, they've done in the week and how they've um, overcome a situation instead of doing what the kids do at school they've done something else and it's really encouraging and they like my fabulous colours so that's cool wow <laughs> yay let's hear it for these two servants awesome. so second point I want to make is serve Jesus by serving others and the idea of serving Jesus is kind of abstract it's kind of floaty you know, what does that mean? Do you become a monk? Uh, do you join a monastery? What does serving Jesus actually mean? Well, let's just, let's just ground it just now. Let me say that serving Jesus is about serving others. It says in Matthew twenty-five forty, this is Jesus speaking. Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did one of these, sorry, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. In other words, the way you serve other people reflects directly 
on how you are directly serving Jesus. This, this idea, this concept is echoed throughout the Bible. For example, in Proverbs it says, if you give to the poor, you lend to the Lord. You're not just giving to someone who's poor. God takes it personally. He is personally blessed by your actions. Now, we don't, we don't serve, we don't give to other people to somehow earn heaven. You know, I, I just, in the first point, I said that Jesus earned heaven for us by dying on that cross. I'm not suggesting that you should become a servant just to somehow earn God's favor or make you feel good about you, you being a Christian. I'm talking about serving out of an attitude of, I love you, God. Remember we talked earlier about the, the Jewish servant who went from being a six-year servant to being a lifetime servant? What was the motive? He loved his master. The reason I serve God is not because I earn bounty points. It's not, because it, it, it's not even because it makes me feel good about myself, even though it does. The reason I serve God is I think he's amazing. How could I not, considering what he's done for me? So the way you serve Jesus is by serving others. <clears throat> See, James despiritualizes serving God. Throughout the book, you find that James is teaching us to do things like, you know, serve others by praying for them, lay hands on them. Serve widows and orphans, provide for their needs. You find he encourages serve people without showing favoritism. Serve the rich and the poor alike, not seeing what you can get out of them, but just serve them. He teaches about serving not only in words, but also in deeds. Throughout the book of James, it's about making real, making physical our kind of floaty faith, making the idea of serving God into a tangible idea that we can actually practically serve God by serving others. See, folks, our dream is for a great church. Great defined by the Bible, not great defined by um, Big Brother or by the, the glossy mags, but great defined by the Bible. What does that mean? We want to be a servant church. We want to be a great church that serves this city. We want this city to be glad that Destiny Church Edinburgh existed. We want that. Not just, uh, you know, that, oh, well, we, we think there was a church around in that street there. No, no. We want them to be tangibly benefited by our, our presence in this city. We want to do two simple things for all the years that we exist. We want to do two things. We want to tell as many people about Jesus as we can, number one. And we want to help as many needy people as we possibly can, number two. And we want to do that locally and globally. That's what we're about. Telling people about Jesus, reaching the lost, and helping the needy locally and globally. That's it. If you want to sum up, that's it. You got it there. That's what we're here for. We're here to serve. We're not here for ourselves. We're not here to make a name for ourselves. We're not here to make ourselves look good. We're here to make him look good and help as many people as we possibly can. That's why we exist. A few things we're doing just to draw to your attention. In September, we're starting a new church. Say, ooh. We're launching Destiny Church Fife. Uh, there's a great team of people who've been coming from Fife to the church. They've got a, a home group that meets over there. And uh, Tim and Amanda, David and Leslie, and, and many others who are part of that team come along every week to the church here. Well, in, Feb in September, we're launching that as a proper church. And uh, it's, it's going to go out and make a big difference there. It's not there because there aren't good churches already in Dunfermline. I I'm good friends with many of the pastors in Dunfermline. There are great churches there. But the church exists in Dunfermline, and it will exist in Dunfermline. It's, well, what's the population of Dunfermline? Anyone tell me? Three, three people, yeah. <laughs> there's four, there's Tim and Amanda and David and Leslie. 
Anyone up? Where? 50 thousands. 60. 61. <laughs> Going. 62. Don't twitch. Don't twitch. Okay. 60 odd thousand people. Um, 50,000 people, whatever. A lot of people. I would wager that there won't even be five or 6,000 of them attend the church on us only. I would wager that. I'd put money on it. So why is Destiny Church 5 launching? For those who do not yet go to church. That's why we're launching. We're not there to take from other churches. We hope that our existence would enhance other churches. We are there to reach the lost and help the needy locally and globally. That's what we're about. Our aim as a church here in Edinburgh is to mobilize not just the, the kind of hardcore teams to action. Our aim as a church here in Edinburgh is to mobilize a congregation to action. There's a big difference. You see, you can have the, the kind of passionate evangelists who go out on Saturday, that's the evangelism team. And you can have the kind of need meters and that's the Destiny Angels team and they go and help the homeless and hand out food parcels and that's the kind of hardcore 30 or 40 people on that team. <clears throat> but you know what my dream is? That we have these teams with 500 people in it. I, w- I want to mobilize in this next year, I want to mobilize the entire congregation to reaching the lost and helping the needy locally and globally. The entire congregation. Now some of you will go out every week because it's your thing totally. And also you've got the time to do that. But for others of you, it might just be you get involved in a project just once or twice in the year. But that's what we want to make happen and make possible. I was really provoked by Todd Proctor who was with us a few weeks ago from Rock Harbor Church. He said that out of his congregation of 6,000 people, every summer they send 2,000 of them on missions. That impacted me profoundly. That this, this, this great leader is mobilizing a church to be a great church, a servant church, to make a big difference. That's my dream. See, I, see if 500 of us are mobilizing, well, that's us just now, God willing in the next year or so, a thousand of us are. And, and to be honest, if everyone turned up, 500 turn up on a Sunday, that's a typical Sunday attendance. If everyone turned up, this represents about 50% to 65% of the people who are actually connected to the church. So there might be as many as a thousand people saying Destiny Church is their church. There might be 700 to a thousand people who say this is their church. But actually turning up on a Sunday is maybe 500 because people have got shift patterns or people are on holiday or people are in bed. Um, There's different reasons. But either way, we're mobilizing hundreds of people in the years ahead, mobilizing thousands of people to make a difference. And it might be officially through one of the church initiatives or it might just be unofficially. It might just be that I am really chuffed that I work at Standard Life in that particular building because in that building at Standard Life across the desk from me is a member of Destiny Church. And I was going through a real rough time and they provided for me. And they came to visit me when I was in hospital. And you know what? I really think there might be a God just simply because I've been impacted by a member of that church. And I'm really glad my dad became a believer and started attending Destiny Church because since then, he's become a much better dad. He no longer abuses me. He speaks kindly to me and he's proactive. He gets involved with me. He gives me time like he didn't used to give me. Things have changed dramatically. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna start going to that church when I'm older. I'm really glad my wife became a Christian and started attending Destiny Church. Man, she loves me like never before. Sex has got hot. Lots of great benefits have taken, taken place since my wife started going to church. And you know what? I'm going to start believing in God myself. I'm telling you, Christianity has a profound impact on many, many aspects of life. And I tell you, it is it, what we're all about. We're here to serve God by reaching the lost and helping the needy locally and globally. 
as best we can. In 2010, we plan to send as many as three teams to Johannesburg to help refurbish orphans' homes. Uh, teams of 17 people. We hope to, we've got two, at least, possibly three team coordinators. And we want to send teams from both Glasgow Church and Edinburgh Church across to Johannesburg. This, this year, sorry, in 2010, it might be three teams. But in the years ahead, it might be more teams we send. We want to focus in on uh, JAM and the work in Africa and also the Indian Orphanage and what we're involved with in Orissa there. We want to do everything we can internationally as well as locally. We celebrate the growth of the church here. We thank God for it, but we see it's a drop in the ocean. This year, we've seen 127 people say yes to Jesus since January in our services. Since It's interesting, we've Beth Godfrey. Where's Beth? Godfrey, are you here? She not here? No. I'll tell you. Beth is an outstanding lady. She's an actor, you know. Uh, Beth is on staff, and her responsibility, one of her key responsibilities, is to look after people who've decided to follow Jesus. And since she started doing that in summer, what we found is we, we kind of looked at the people who'd responded to follow Jesus, many of you who've responded to follow Jesus, that leading up to the 12 months leading up to when Beth took that role on, about 17% of the people saying yes to Jesus stayed in the church. Since Beth doing, started doing this, 43% of the people saying yes to Jesus have stayed in the church. So it's been a, it had a marked impact, and, and it's, it's better, but it's still not what we're going for. We really want to see the church grow, not by taking folks from other churches. There are many great churches in the city, and I support the pastors, and I love the pastors, and I don't want to take from this. The last thing I want to do, unless God has led you, don't leave with bad attitude from another church. If you're here from another church, and you've got a narc in your mind about that other church, then my advice is go back to that other church and put things right. Go back and put things right. Stop being critical. Love that pastor. Serve in that church. Our responsibility here is to see a church start, reach people who were not part of church. Maybe they had been part of church, but have fallen away from it. On the other hand, if, if you feel God has led you here and you haven't left with bad attitude from another church, then you're welcome. Good to have you here. But you have to understand what we're all about. We're not about Christians. We're about reaching those who are not yet part, part with us. Destiny Angels is also making a big impact. In the last 12 months, we've had 347 requests to our, to our call, call line in Edinburgh. We've given out 146 food parcels. There's been 42 befriending requests, 32 prayer requests, 24 requests for housework, and 25 requests for decorating houses. So we've been trying to get involved with the, the, the great, some of the greatest needs on our doorstep by the means of this call center. Church is not a passenger ship, it's a naval vessel. It's not a passenger ship where you've got a captain and everyone's just enjoying the cruise. It's a naval vessel, it's ding ding, all hands on deck. Everyone's got a responsibility, everyone's got a part to play. And for each one it's different. Some people have this amount of time to give, some people have this. But we can all do something. Some people's gift is in this area, other people's gift is in this area. So don't worry if what you're doing doesn't look like what someone else is doing. It's not about that. It's about your greatest ambition is life, is I want to be a servant of God. And for me, I outwork this like this. The Bible says in Psalm 110 verse 3, your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. So I want to encourage you, start serving. See a need and meet it. Start serving in the church. You know, we're going to having the same message in the morning and evening meetings. If you've been used to coming to both, well, still come to both. But this is what I'd encourage you to do. Come to one to serve. Come to one to to take in. Come and be blessed at one and come and serve and be a blessing in another.
Get involved in a team. See a need and meet it. Bill Wilson made a profound statement. He said, this is the guy who passes the world's largest Sunday school in the Bronx in New York. He said, the need is the call. Some people are waiting for some angel to appear from heaven and give them this big calling. According to Bill Wilson, the need is the call. God has highlighted that need to your attention. And the fact is, the need that you see will not be the need that the person sitting next to you sees. Why? Because you're wired differently. You see things differently. What flicks your switch might not flick their switch. What moves you won't necessarily move them because they're different. They're tailored differently. They're unique in God. So I want to, at the end of the service today, we've got, um, our teams are doing a kind of sign up to serve presentation. And there's, in the cafe at the back, please get a moment to just go around and have a look at all the things that are happening. Lots of teams to get involved with. We're not here to fill your, da- your calendar with things. And also, it, it, we, we don't want to be a church that 10% does 90% of the work. We want to share the load. We want to be a team effort here. And together we can truly impact the city. But get involved with where you can. Have a look at what's going on. Don't feel the pressure to sign up to tons of things. It's better that you do one or two things really well or one thing really well. It's better that you're true to your word when you commit to something, you follow through with it rather than signing up for everything and being useless at everything. It's better to sign up for a few things and get involved and do make a difference. Can I encourage you just really quickly, really practically? We've got about 80 leaders in this church. Phenomenal people. Most of them give their life for free to serve. Many of them are putting in just as many hours in serving in the church as they are in serving in their workplace or as they're giving in their studies. It is incredible. I admire these people so much. They're not leaders because they've got some prophecy over their life about being leaders and because they've got great eloquence. Some of them have that. But they're leaders because they serve. You want to become a leader at Destiny Church? Then having a prophecy over your life isn't going to be enough. Having eloquence in the way you speak or an ability to put yourself forward is not enough. If you want to be a leader in the church, you come the Bible way. You want to be great? you serve. Leaders are people who are doing the stuff, not just saying it. They're living it. They're enhancing the lives of those around them. They're making an impact. And here's what I want to ask you as a congregation, a wonderful congregation to do. I want you to hold with, in high esteem those who are giving their time for free, as well as those who are on staff and being paid for it. Because the fact is everyone on staff did for free what they're doing on staff before they ever became on staff. Someone once said, if you're not in full-time ministry by the time you get into full-time ministry, when you get into full-time ministry, you won't be in full-time ministry. That's a good point. Servant-hearted leaders, they're awesome people. Can I encourage you, respect them. Do you know what? The growth is exciting. But growth equals excitement plus major stress and challenge. Every leader in this church will tell you it is the most exciting thing to be a leader here. But they'll also tell you heavy going. It's hard work. And while we we rejoice at the numbers of people coming, and oh, let's start a new service. Yay! Woo! The leaders are saying, yeah. (laughs) Because they know what it means. They know what it's going to take. Can I encourage you? Consider them. Pray for them. You know what? Really help them. Here's some practical ways. Do you know what increases the stress levels of leaders in this church? When you serve in sloppy ways. Here's a question for you. Would you have the same attitude to your paid employment as you have to serving for free in the church? If you applied your attitude in serving for free in the church to to work, 
would you get sacked at work? See, folks, what's your motivation? What's my motivation? Just to clarify, I, I, I led this church for five years working full-time in an architect's office. I came on staff full-time as pastor when the church was 50 people in 2003. So I, I believe in this stuff. It's, it's now not feasible for me to work full-time in a secular employment. I have to give myself full-time to ministry now because that's what's going to be most effective for me. It's different seasons in life. But I, I'm not saying this as someone who's not done this. But can I say, folks, what's your attitude to serving? Would you serve harder if you were being paid to do it? You know, do you give your, do you give your degree or your employment everything you've got, but you give God the dregs? It doesn't sound like a servant of God attitude to me. And do you know what? When you give, when you give sloppy to church, do you know what happens? It really stresses the leaders out. Because they're doing it for free as well. But because you're not carrying weight, they're having to do the job of two people rather than one. And it's already hard enough. So church, I want to encourage you, don't serve sloppily. Be diligent. Be diligent. Have a good attitude in the way you serve. When you agree to do something and you're serving, then do it. Don't agree to things you're not going to do. Because if a leader hears you've agreed to something and you don't do it, that creates stress in their hearts. I encourage you, don't drop out in the last minute. If you're serving and you feel that you can no longer serve for whatever reason, then just as you would in the employment, you'd give notice. Why? So that your boss has time to fill that gap. But what we do is we treat the church shabbily because what we do I can't do this anymore. Life doesn't suit me. See ya. And it's almost like you serving in the church was doing a favor to the leaders. It's not doing a favor to the leaders. Is it not about serving God? So I want to encourage you, when you serve in the church, do it with excellence. And I'm, again, I'm not saying give us your 20 hours a week. Some of you can. Some of you can give one hour a week, and that's awesome. Everyone's different. I'm not talking about the time given. I'm talking about the attitude in which you give that time. You know, so, and here's another point, just while I'm on a rant. If you're serving, and you say, you know what, I'm going through a hard time just now. I'm going to step down from all serving. Let me make a point to you. That is not always the wisest thing to do. Sometimes you need time out, but here's a better solution. Balance. And what we tend to do as human beings is we go from one extreme to the other. We're so busy, busy, busy doing everything that we find ourselves in a hard, bad place in life. And so what we do as a result of that is we go to the other extreme of doing nothing. And you know what? That equally is damaging to your soul. Can I suggest the best way to proceed is balance? In other words, do things you should be doing. Don't do things you shouldn't be doing. Make sure you're giving your time in a balanced way. And that creates peace. Um, I've seen many leaders in the church here really stressed out because one week they'll get an email or someone will phone them and say, just so you know, I'm no longer going to serve on your team as of immediate effect. And they're left in the lurch. And many of the leaders, although they wouldn't admit it, sometimes have hit the wall. They've really hit the wall. Because what you're doing is you're not considering them. And you're considering yourself. And I understand you need to consider yourself. But consider the leader for a moment. What are they going through just now? As, as a growing church, we need to really be considerate. Because love means we consider. I want to encourage you as well, a way that you can alleviate stress in your leaders is have a leave it with me mentality. Look for tasks. Look for things you can take from your leader. If your leader's carrying a lot of weight, 
Ask yourself, is there any of, any of that way that I could say, listen, let me take all of this from you and leave it with me. Carry some serious weight. And do you know what will happen? You're going to be a leader soon. Because that's what, that's what leaders do, carry weight. Miles Monroe said, you were designed not only to be special and unique, but to also specialize. You were created to accomplish something that no one else can accomplish. Do you know what? When I turned up at Destiny Church in Glasgow, week one in 1990-whatever, I can't remember. I was 19 years old. It was the day the clocks changed, actually. I turned up in my vest, but I hadn't changed my clock. So I was an hour early. And the head steward, none of his stewards had turned up. And it was at a time when they didn't own their own building, so they set up the whole place and took down. I was there an hour early, my first Sunday there. And the head steward said, you're an answer to my prayer. I was praying that someone would turn up to help me set this hall up. (laughs) So from week one, I was a steward. That was it. Week two, I was on the door welcoming people. I was just, I was new. Honestly, that's a true story. So I helped set up the whole place. And that was my journey at Destiny Year. I was from the word, I was was a steward. And then I got involved in the kids ministry and I got involved in the evangelism team. I just, I, I was a student. I had tons of time. All students do. Red rag to a bull there. All students think that they don't, but all students do. Okay. <laughs> Driving some kids and stuff like that. Okay. Anyway, um, moving on really quickly. Pete Kitchen will counsel the f- folks in dispatch to heal these wounds. But do you know what? And do, do you know what I found? I started out being a generalist. I just saw a need and I met the needs. It wasn't like I heard God say, "Thou shalt be a steward." I just thought the guy needs a hand setting the chairs out. Right? I've got a brain. I can do that. So I was a steward. But do you know what? For me, that was the beginning of my journey into leadership. That was it. How am I a pastor now? Because I started setting out chairs and getting involved in kids ministry and got involved in the evangelism team. God can, a rudder can steer a moving ship. A rudder does nothing for a stationary ship. And some people are waiting for a a word from heaven. Or they've got a word from heaven that are waiting for someone to out the blue say, here's the platform. Oh, great one. It doesn't happen that way. It doesn't happen that way. You just get moving. You see a need, you meet the needs. And you go from being a generalist and in time you start honing down. As you're involved in things, you start to think, actually, my real strengths lie in these areas. And you start giving yourself to those areas. And before you know it, you found your purpose in life. Before you know it, you found your bullseye. First Peter 4.10 says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it. Have no unemployed gifts in your life. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Take a minute on your uh, informed inside sheet there. Take a minute if you've got a pen or if you don't have a pen, just think about it and go home and write it at the end. Write down three, three things. Write down your three greatest gifts and abilities and then in the next bit, write down the five current needs that you know you could meet. Go for it your three greatest gifts and abilities, and then write down the five current needs that you can meet. Okay, you can finish that off at the end uh, when you get home. Aristotle, who's not in the Bible, says, where your talents and the need of this world crosses, there lies your vocation. That's a good thought. Where your talent and the needs of this world cross, that's your purpose because God's designed you not just to be special but to specialize here's the thing 
get moving with something. And then in time, go from being a generalist to being a specialist. Thirdly and finally, serve as an act of worship to God. My question is, what transformed James from being brother of Jesus to being servant of Jesus? What transformed Jude from being brother of Jesus to being servant of Jesus? You know, what, what transformed, what changed their mindset? The answer is the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 7. For I, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he appeared to Peter and to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still alive. And some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and to the other apostles. Imagine James growing up with his elder brother Jesus, hearing the things he was saying, seeing the things he was doing, but being cynical and skeptical throughout. They thought, man, he's living a risky life. The Jews are threatening to stone him. There's talk of trying to kill him. They knew that he was living a risky life and, they, and, J- and James was skeptical of his claims. He's claiming divinity. He can't say I and the Father are one. He can't say I'm the way, the truth, and the life and no one gets to the Father except through me. It's arrogant. He can't say these things, Jesus. But what's strange is people are getting raised from the dead and blind eyes are being opened. It's uncanny. And then he would hear Jesus say things like, I'm going to die. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed and I'm going to die on the cross, and on the third day I'm going to rise. He would hear Jesus' elder brother saying this on many occasions. It would reinforce in his mind, my brother's mad, he's lost the plot. <clears throat> but then one day, it all went horribly wrong. They saw him take his brother and nail him to a Roman cross. They saw him whip him. They, it, it, to be honest, his brother was unrecognizable. The beard was plucked from his face. There was people spitting at him and hurling abuse at him. He was more like an animal rather than a human being on that cross. He was rejected. He was despised. And there on that cross, he was thinking about others. He was asking for forgiveness for the people who were doing it. And he was concerned about his mum. And James is watching all this and saying, this, isn't, this is not how it should go. And in the third day, the Bible says that Jesus rose and he took time to appear. And James had a face-to-face encounter with his older brother, Jesus. And it was like the veil was lifted. All of a sudden, he realized that everything that Jesus had said was true. Because the fact is, folks, if he hadn't raised from the dead, Jesus was just a dead guru who lied. But if he, because he said great things and he said he would die and rise. And if he said all those great things, and if he didn't die and rise, then if he didn't rise, then how are we to believe anything else he said? But as soon as he saw his brother risen from the dead, he thought, this changes my life, revolutionizes my life. You're no longer my brother. You're my Lord. I pledge my allegiance to you. In fact, I am your bond servant, your doulos for life. I'm going to follow you and serve you from now on. Why do you serve? You're not doing it to serve, to, as a favor to me or as a favor to Destiny Church. You're doing it because you love God. Why do you serve in your workplace when no one else is looking? Because you love God. Why do you serve in your house? Because you love God. That's the reason we serve. 
because of God's. It says in Romans 12, 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer your body as living sacrifices, holy, pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Why do you serve? In view of God's mercy. What else could I do other than present my life as a living sacrifice to him who gave his life for me? Lord God, we want to thank you that you truly are alive and you truly care and you paid the ultimate price for us. God, we acknowledge that so often we've lived for self and it's left us empty and hopeless. God, we ask forgiveness when we've put ourselves before you. We ask forgiveness for when we've served sloppily in the things that you don't count as unimportant. And I pray, God, I pray, God, let, give us the honor as Destiny Church Edinburgh, as this congregation. Give us the honor of being a servant congregation, being a blessing to you, being a blessing to the other churches, being a blessing to the city, being a blessing to those who don't yet know you, with no strings attached, helping the needy, whether they come to our church or not, that people would appreciate and feel the felt impact of our love, or should I say your love through us, into their lives. Give us the honor of being that, God. God, forgive us for when we've served self rather than serve you. Help this to be our greatest ambition to serve you. In Jesus' name. Okay, take a moment to respond to God. Take a moment to pray to him. Talk to him about what you've heard. If you've been challenged, then respond to the challenge before God just now. just now if you're not if you're not connected with God yet you've heard that Jesus died for you on that cross and rose again why don't you come to him why don't you ask him for his forgiveness believe in him and the Bible says you will have eternal life his great gift to you then in response to his love why not make a commitment to serving him and that will look different for each one of you but for you, it'll be authentic. It'll be total. It'll be driven out of love for him. If that's you, you're saying, Peter, I want to commit my life to the Lord. I need to know his forgiveness. I need to know his salvation. Then this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray a prayer, a prayer of dedication to God. And I invite you to repeat this prayer after me. Let this be your prayer of dedication to God. A prayer where you commit your life to following him. So that's you. Repeat this quietly under your breath. Repeat it with me now. Pray, dear Lord God, thank you that you love the world so much you came. Jesus, you died for me in that cross and you rose again the third day. I acknowledge I am a sinner and I need saved. I ask you, you'd forgive me. I ask you to give me a new star. Thank you. 
Jesus, I believe you rose from the dead and you're alive now. And Jesus, it would be the greatest honor for me for the rest of my days to be a servant of God. I make you Lord of my life. I pledge my allegiance to you. And from this day forward, I serve you. Thanks for hearing my prayer. Amen. Keep your eyes closed. If anyone prayed that prayer, you've just done a great thing. And I believe that God has heard your prayer. I would love the privilege of asking God's blessing on your life. Asking God to bless you as you embark on this new journey. I'm going to ask you to do a simple thing. If you've prayed that prayer, in order to know who I'm praying for, I'm not going to embarrass your colleagues at the front or get you to stand up or anything like that. But just where you are, if you prayed that prayer, I'd like to pray for you. Can you just simply indicate to me that you prayed that by raising your hands very briefly? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? You made that commitment. Before I praise it, anyone else made that commitment? Thank you. God, thank you so much for these precious, precious people. Thank you so much for their commitment today to say yes to you. I want to thank you. The Bible promises that you have now given them this gift called eternal life because they've put their faith in Jesus. And the Bible promises that they're forgiven. I pray, God, empower them by your Spirit to live lives of serving you from this day forward. In Jesus' name.